What up, guys? Welcome to episode 12 of the Despound Therapy Podcast. Today I'm talking with Megan Calloway. And a little bit of background here. Originally found her through a, an article on the Personal Trainer Development Center and was really blown away by the training style. It was kind of what I've been trying to incorporate from my background in gymnastics and functional training into more like strength and bodybuilding. It's like, it's really cool style. It's what I've been trying to kind of put together for myself for a while. And then when I saw it, I started to engage with her content more. And now we got Megan on our podcast here. So she is a strength coach, a writer, and a Pope expert. So feel free to go ahead and tell us a little bit more about yourself. Thank you for having me, first of all. So um, I've been a strength coach for over 15 years. I, I mean, most of my clients are general population, although I have worked with a good number of elite athletes. The people that I work with, they typically, they want to feel better, perform at a higher level. And a lot of the people I train, I mean, including the elite athletes, they really want to learn what they're doing or what we're doing, I should say. They want to, or they want to understand the process. And, and another huge part of my training in terms of my own training with my clients and I mean, even the people who follow me on social media, I want people to enjoy what they're doing, to have fun, to feel like they're playing and to feel really empowered. So that's a huge part of my overall mission. So is that where your mindset fitness should be fun? Is that where it comes from? I mean, I wrote about this a while back and yes, I mean, not, you're probably not going to look forward to do it or to training a hundred percent of the time. But if you pick activities and workouts that you tend to enjoy, the chances are you are going to train more consistently and it's going to become an overall, like it's just going to become a part of your lifestyle. Right. And so that's what's I do necessary believe, for sustainability, yeah, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, if you hate what you're doing, you're probably not, I mean, for one, you're not going to look forward to doing it, but you'll also be hard pressed to do it consistently. Yeah, and that's really like, uh, we're going to come into that later, but consistency is so, so important. And it doesn't matter what your training style is, what your goal is. Like, that's one of the number one factors. Yeah. I mean, consistency even trumps intensity. Yeah, and a lot like of people, a lot of people forget that, yeah. It. Yeah, or like, like the whole, like, no pain, no gain. Both, like, total myth. I mean, people, they push themselves to the point of pain. Sometimes they hurt themselves. And they overdo it, they burn themselves out, and then of course they're not going to be able to train consistently, and they're probably going to be hard pressed to achieve their goals. Yeah, I talked about this in my episode last week about people think it's about annihilating muscles to build muscle, but really it's just about stimulating. And it, it seems yeah. so simple that it's just stimulating muscles and not killing yourself. But often, the best workouts are the one where you don't feel like you killed yourself and you went like a good intensity, because you shouldn't really like feel dead afterwards like a lot of people especially like in the the powerlifting craze we have right now people like go for that all or nothing or uh high intensity all the time or nothing kind of attitude yeah or even training to failure i mean of course like if you're doing something like me for example say i'm doing a body weight exercise where it's relatively safe say i feel like pushing myself to failure and i mean technical failure say my form breaks down i will stop but a lot of people, I mean, they push themselves to the point where their form deteriorates. Sometimes, I mean, I don't want to say people are necessarily going to injure themselves. But I mean, if you do train to failure all the time and in a way that is not done intelligently, you probably will be more likely to injuring yourself, to being burnt out, to not being able to train consistently. And I strongly believe if you're going to train to failure, it should be technical failure. And with my own training and with a lot of the people I train, I kind of like to use the, um, for my mindset, I usually like to leave one or two good reps left in the tank. So say I'm doing a set of squats, 
I will generally say I could do 10 good reps or 10 decent reps. I will generally stop at eight or nine where I feel like I have one or two good reps left in me. This is going to allow me to recover better. It's going to allow me to train more consistently. Say I might be able to train my legs one day sooner than if I had pushed myself to the point of failure. And I mean, your body is not going to feel fresh if you do train to failure all the time or I shouldn't say ever because sometimes, of course, it does serve a purpose. It's just a matter of being smart with your training and listening to your body. Yeah, and that's super, super important. So would you say your your functional training style, you know, how yours is more focused on using the bands and focused on mobility and stuff like that, can that potentially uh, reduce your risk of injury compared to exclusively lifting heavy loads? Uh, I mean, to be honest, like for my upper body, I do do a lot of body weight stuff. I, of course, you see the pull-ups, the calisthenics, stuff like that. But I do, a lot of my training does involve barbells and dumbbells. For my lower body, pretty much most of what I do is weighted. For my upper body, a, like a lot of the pulling, like the vertical pulling, of course, pull-ups, chin-ups, that's body weight. And I do a lot of the more advanced push-ups. But I do use a lot of resistance versus just the body weight. And I mean, I confess in terms of my own training, I do not do a lot of mobility work. I have actually found because I tend to be more hypermobile than anything. I used to do, I was in a bad car accident when I was 28. For over five years, nobody could tell, tell me what was wrong. And so, I mean, I felt chronically tight in quotations tight because a lot of it I think was neural I had so many issues, and even in terms of stress relief, the only thing that brought me some sort of relief, and it was more mental relief than anything, was stretching. So I spent, sometimes like on bad days, I would spend hours on end stretching. I felt no better off after. I was probably worse off than if I had not done the mobility. Now that I'm better, I actually like, I can't tell you the last time that I've done any sort of rolling for example I used to do a lot of that I do do some stretching sometimes but for me just because I am hypermobile I do better without whereas a lot of other people they would benefit from incorporating more of it into their training so it really does depend on the person yeah and you talk but about that all the time too on your on your Facebook post how like everything should be personalized to the individual and their goals like there's no like one size fits all approach that's thing I think a lot of people oversee, especially like in terms of their fitness, they'll look at the dude beside them at the gym and just try to copy them versus trying to yeah. learn about their body, understanding how you move as a person. Yeah. Or I mean, even when you see coaches and I mean, of course, hundred percent, like everybody's different. We don't all have the same build goals, strengths, weaknesses, and so forth. Yet you see a lot of people making their clients do identical workouts the same mobility the state the same strength exercises when it should be personalized so again for me I do not do a lot of mobility I have another client I work with and she is crazy hypermobile she used to stretch constantly she was going to yoga all the time and so for her I mean she was dealing with a lot of different issues discomfort and so I told her for her warm-up because she would come in really early and would just roll and stretch for ages. I said, instead of doing that, I want you to try focusing on stability. So I would have her, she would do dead bugs. She would do different glute exercises, different exercises for the shoulders and shoulder blades, kind of some more stability stuff. Once she started doing that, and also she did cut out yoga because for her, it was not a good idea. 
she, her discomfort dramatically improved, her, in quotations, tightness dramatically improved. And I say tightness in quotations because, of course, there's so many different reasons for it. And I mean, I'll have other clients like thoracic mobility. It's really important. So they will do that in their warm ups. Other people, they might need to work on their ankle mobility. So it, it really does depend on the person. So let's take it back a step for the people who are not too familiar with stability. Like a lot of people focus on just repping up the weight. But like why is stability important? Why should someone who, who is working out currently not involving that, why should they integrate that into their program? I mean, for one, it helps safeguard the body. So say you're doing a heavy squat or, I mean, even a body weight squat for that matter. I mean, even though you're not going to necessarily injure yourself doing a body weight squat, if you lack stability in certain parts of your body, you will be hard-pressed to perform the exercise safely and correctly. And of course, especially as the weight increases. And so actually a good example with me, I have, I don't know if you've seen any of my videos from my squatting, I have crazy ankle mobility. I, I, I mean, I can go really, really low, pretty much ass to grass if I want. My knees, because I do have very good ankle mobility, they are way past my toes, even though my feet are flat on the ground, form is the way it should be. But even just out of habit, I would always stretch my calves and work on my ankle mobility before I squatted or deadlifted. What I found, I removed the squat or the um, ankle mobility before I squatted. My mm-hmm. strength dramatically went up. Just because my ankles are so mobile, it was harder for me to keep my heels down. I mean, even though I was driving to the middle of my feet, my heels, they might, I mean, it would be very, it would probably be hard to notice. I was aware they would want to lift a tiny bit. The second I stopped stretching my calves before I squatted, it was so easy for me to focus on. I mean, obviously driving through the middle of the feet, keeping the heels down. I had, I have so much more strength coming out of the hole now that I took out the ankle mobility. Whereas, I mean, other people, they will need to do that before they squat. Yeah, I'm the complete opposite. I've actually seen your videos and I was very like amazed. Like you have those single leg step ups on a block with the landmines and I saw you had like really good dorsiflexion and it, it actually proves the point here because I have like the complete opposite problem. My ankles are probably like I'd say I'm like I had from coming from gymnastics I had some hypermobility in like the hips and the shoulders but the ankles are always have and still are uh, like an issue that I'm currently working on so it really shows that everyone's different. Yeah and I mean even way back in the day I think I was maybe 19 or something and I sprained my ankle playing soccer I knew it was not that bad. I could tell. I figured I would probably out, be out for about a week. I went to a physio. They looked at my ankle and they just moved it around. Oh, it looks like you tore every single ligament. And so I was like, actually, no, I think I just have really mobile ankles. And so I was back playing. I think it was not even a week. But they thought just because my ankles are so hypermobile that I'd torn every single ligament. So they're are very, very hypermobile, but I have learned how to control the mobility, and that's the key, is being able to own your mobility. Yeah, that's recently what I've been learning about. I, I have a background in, in like personal training and yoga and strength, but as a yoga teacher, a lot of times we're, we're taught to just teach them like the slow-paced, like deep stretching. And then I took uh, like one of those FRC courses, yeah. and it really completely changed. Like I would say my classes are barely even yoga anymore. Like they're very yoga and like the fact that like I'm very calm and zen when I'm teaching, but we're doing yeah. a lot of like FRC stuff now because it just changed my whole mindset, my whole belief system. Like I'm just like I don't feel comfortable having someone hold a, a four minute pigeon pose anymore. I'd rather them do like 
an active range of motion and own that range because really like yeah they'll yeah. feel good right after my class but like what are they going to feel like the next day they will lose the mobility yeah I mean if you're doing and that's the other thing I tell people if you're doing the same thing over and over for example the stretching and the rolling and it's not working and you're just as tight or you don't feel good obviously something else is probably going on and you need to look you have to figure out why versus kind of just chasing after the symptoms yeah, because, for example, I had a client, and he had knee pain on, like, the medial side of the knee. And originally, we thought it was because he, he fell on the ice in the winter, but it actually turned out it's because his left hip wasn't internally rotating as well, and that was causing, like, some, like, misalignment issues, and just, it was kind of compensating at the knee joint. So as soon as we yeah. started doing, like, some active liftoffs in 90-90, and, like, some hip cars, like, like, the pain completely went away. It was crazy. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the time, the source of the pain is not the cause. And that's what a lot of people don't realize. So would you say, like, it's good to have, like, having a balanced approach to fitness will help you kind of prevent these, like, imbalances? Or is it just, like, having that understanding and the education? I mean, it's easy for me to say, oh, people need to be educated and to understand, which, I mean, yes, if they did understand, it would be so much easier for them. But of course, people, they want to train. They don't necessarily want to learn everything. And I get that. People are busy with their lives. And I mean, they might just want to do the training and not take the time to really learn and understand. Um, for me, like knowledge is power. The more you know, the more, I mean, hopefully you'll be able to safeguard your body against injury, the higher level of performance you might be able to achieve. I mean, whatever your goal is, the more you know, you generally will do better. So I encourage people to educate themselves if they can. And then, I mean, that's what I try to do. Obviously, like the people that I work with in person, online, even my social media, just the content I put out, I really want to educate people. And I really almost want them to feel like they're with me in person, even just based on my posts, like what they see or read. Yeah, your stuff is really good. And you can see just it seems like like it's 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 like it's real fitness like a lot of like stuff you're doing is actually real and functional and applicable to like everyday movements you're using things like like the landmine which barely gets used in the gym and using bands which a lot of people like especially new people at the gym they have no idea what to do with them or how to do with them so really i really like the angle you're taking it seems like it's stuff like that you can still build muscle with this stuff you can still get stronger but it, it comes back to the theme we were talking about how you don't always need to like like do like the squat bench and deadlift like you can do other ways to train the movement pattern yeah I mean that's the whole thing there's so many different variations of the same movement pattern and I mean even just using an example the hip thrust so many people think I mean some people might love it and if they do that's awesome if it works for them I'm all for it a lot of people I know really really do not like the barbell hip thrust it does not feel good for them I mean loading it is such a hassle I used to do them a lot either the heavy hip thrusts or heavy glute bridges, just for me, and I'm just speaking purely from my own experience, I took them out of my training. When I was actually doing the heavy hip thrusts or glute bridges, my squat performance was worse. My deadlifts were worse because I found my glutes were just so fried from that one exercise. So I took them out. I'm a huge fan. I love the single leg hip thrust with the band. I mean, I love a lot of the kind of single leg or band resisted glute bridges or hip thrusts. For me, since I did that, my body feels better. My strength and all of my other exercises is way up. I don't really talk about aesthetics that much, but in terms of my own glute development, it, they've gotten a lot bigger since I removed those two exercises from my training. And I mean, I've written about this quite a bit. 
And I've had people message me and they were so relieved just because they were led to believe that they had to perform the barbell hip thrusts or else they would not achieve their, like the glute strength or their kind of aesthetic goals for their glutes. And that's totally not the case. You could say the same with barbell squats, bench press, deadlifts. I mean, any lift, there are so many other variations that will help you achieve the same goal. And I mean, they might be better suited to your body, like your build, your fitness level, your experience and so forth. So if people know there is more flexibility for them with their training, I think it will make them feel more confident and it's just way more helpful. Yeah, I've been there too. Like I used to do barbell hip thrust in the past and I just found like it was a real pain in the ass to load and even sometimes it wasn't always like safe like to fail in that movement. Like it's great and you feel your glutes working, but if you can like there's a little bit of controversy behind it. For example, like someone who sits at like a desk all day, you're, you're, you're stuck in a lot of hip flexion already and you're just, well, on one hand, you're building a bit of strength from there, but you're also like loading it in a shortened position. So maybe we want to do more stuff to strengthen the hip flexes, like like those those hanging marches you do or just any kind of marches, like that would be more beneficial for someone at like the desk population. So maybe hip thrusts are still good for some, but there's so much you can do there. I remember you posted one, it was like you're on a bridge and you had the band over one knee, it was like a single leg hip thrust. And that was honestly harder than like a lot of the hip thrusts I've ever done. Easily. I mean, that is one of my favorite exercises. And I train my legs twice a week. I do it on one of the two days. I absolutely love it. And I mean, back in the day, it's probably been, I'd have to look on Facebook because I did post a video of it. My PR for glute bridges, I've done a 500 pound glute bridge before. No problem. I did a 425 times nine with like a good one to two second hold at the top. No problem. Yet you get these single leg exercises. They can be so much tougher. But I mean, for me, they were just way more effective. And I mean, again, some people do do very well with the barbell hip thrusts and glute bridges. So I would never discourage somebody from doing them. But if somebody does not like them or if it does not make them feel good, there are so many better or other alternatives, I should say. So what would like an average like leg day workout? You train it twice a week. Is one day more quad dominant, one day is more hip dominant, or do you try to find a balance in the two days? I mean, it really depends. Uh, so what I've been doing lately, I have been doing, I generally, like I start off with more of a strength-based exercise where my rep range is anywhere kind of from like three to six. So I will, like right now I start off and I do, um, I love, I'm one of the weird people who loves front squats. I absolutely love them. So I will generally do, lately I've been doing pause squats. And so, I mean, and how I warm myself up, I will do a set of body weight. Then I do, will do a with the bar. And I'll pop on a 25 per side. Then I kind of get into my working sets. So I don't do any flashy or fancy warm up. I warm myself up by doing the same movement, but with body weight and then less weight than my working sets. So I'll start with that. I just do the front squats. I will do generally three or four working sets. Then what I will do, I usually do, um, I, I've been into negative reps as well. So I've been doing a pretty heavy for what they are, barbell RDLs. Then I'll do, I try to incorporate most of the movement patterns and I will do a lunge variation. Then, um, I mean, oh, this is another thing. I am able to tolerate a very high volume. So my volume might be higher than a lot of other people. I can tolerate it both during the workout and I recover very well. So then what I'll do, I do um, GHRs 
And I don't know if you saw the exercise where I do them and I have the, a band around my shoulder blades and I'm holding it in either hand. Oh, yeah. And so my that. arms. Yeah, I got from Eric Cressy. It is so good. And it basically, he said it strengthens the serratus as well. But what I find it's really awesome for is so many people cheat. Like it makes it very hard to use your back. Basically, by having your arms in that position, you are forced to use your hamstrings and glutes. You don't arch, like you don't hyperextend your lower back. So since I've been doing that, I have noticed a crazy difference in my hamstring strength. And then I usually pair that with the um, reverse Nordic curls. Or sorry, the landmine reverse Nordic curls, I think you've probably seen. Yeah, I was just about to say, didn't you mean that one? Because I saw it on your page earlier today. Love it. Yeah. So I pair those two. And then generally I will finish off, I've been doing either a Copenhagen side plank with the single leg hip thrust with the band, or I will do landmine squat space, so for the adductors, and then the single leg hip thrust. So that's one of my two leg days. The second day is very similar, but I generally, I swap out the barbell RDLs and I do the landmine staggered stance deadlifts, which I absolutely love. And then I take out the reverse Nordic curls, and I generally will do uh, Spanish squats with a pretty decent amount of weight. Yeah, Spanish squats are amazing. That's why I found you, your whole like fitness page and everything. I just saw them because I had a client with like previous ankle and knee issues, so we started doing that. And it was just like it's just one of those things that are just amazing. You never think, and I'm just like, wow, that's a really great exercise. Well, it's funny because the first time I saw it, I was so skeptical. And I mean, but the person who posted it, Barbell Physio, they're very credible. So I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to try it and just see what I think. So I ended up trying it out. I absolutely loved it. So, I mean, I use it myself. I do use it with certain clients. And it is a really, really underrated exercise. So you you mentioned before, like, you have a very high tolerance to volume. Is that something you've adapted by? I know there's a rule of thumb, like, how much you should increase like per month in order to avoid injury. But is that something you've adapted to or has you've always been like from like sports and, and stuff like that, like a fast at recovering? Pretty much for most of my life I've been like that. I mean, I do train a lot smarter now. And I even talked about leaving one or two reps in the tank. That has made a huge difference for me. Kind of just not training to boost my ego. So I kind of have, I mean, trial and error or just making mistakes, I have removed, when I train, it's a lot less about my ego now and doing stupid things. I think as I've aged, I've become smarter. Yeah, fine. Like, I used to do the gymnastics, and, like, it was an ego thing for me. I would just do, like, handstands every day, and I wouldn't focus enough on, like, the stability stuff. And then you come to realize, like, it's a hard, like, mindset to overcome because, like, you have, like, like I was, like, a one-trick pony, and now, like, I'm, I'm, I'm generally doing general strength training now, but, like, it's hard. Like, a lot of people, like, all their all it is all their whole social life is going to the gym, right? And like getting strong at those yeah. lifts is, is could be like a social thing for them. So I feel like some people might be like afraid to try dropping the weight and just focusing on like different movements. Like you'll see a lot of people who will come to your point about like doing less volume per the entire workout, so recovering better. Some people just go too hard. Like if you're just doing a squad and you're going like RP eight nine for like every set, and you're just maybe you're. You're, you're just burning yourself out way too early in the workout before you can get any additional volume in. Yeah, and I mean, I've actually toned down my volume. I probably did even more, I'd say about three, four years ago. Like, especially my upper body, I mean, 
with my training, I'm a lot more regimented with my lower body. With my upper body, I kind of give myself a lot of freedom to play and do what I want. But I mean, I still even, based on the fact that I do play and do what I want, I still make sure I do a lot of the horizontal pulling because, of course, I don't just do pull-ups. I do a lot of the horizontal pulling. I do a lot of vertical pushing, horizontal. I mean, I do incorporate all of the fundamental movements, but in a way that is much less regimented. And I mean, for me, that works great. Other people, it might need to be more structured. Right, but the the overall thing is here, you can still achieve your goals with these. You can still progressively load all these landmine exercises, all the dumbbell exercises. You could even get like, even more volume in perhaps by maybe skipping that barbell and working on your weaknesses like the Copenhagen plank strengthening your adductors and some lunges too. So I say you can definitely like still achieve your resu- your desired results with like more functional training. Yeah, and I mean, even one thing that I love to do, and I know Tony Gentlecore has written about it a lot, so have I, so have others. I like to pair, for example, say I'm doing a de- like a barbell deadlift or a squat. Rather than just resting, I will pair a filler exercise. So something that, of course, does not compete with the main lift. And I'm addressing an area that I might need to work on. So I might do something where I'm addressing scapular and shoulder control mobility. I might do something for lump pelvic stability. Somebody else, they might, or actually, I will even do an exercise that I really like for elbow health. So something where I'm kind of addressing an area that needs to be worked on but it's not taking away from the overall integrity of the main lift so you get a lot more done in less time so you can still do your main lifts but you also are really addressing areas that need to be worked on yeah and I find a lot of times like I'm guilty of it myself we focus a lot of times on our strengths and we put our weaknesses maybe we skip them or maybe we put them towards the end of the workout where that's not always the best idea if we're thinking long-term like sustainability in the gym we want to focus on these weak areas. I know you you talk a lot about like the lumbar pelvic stability and the shoulder stability and then foot stability, which is one like you never see anyone talking about. I thought it was really cool. Yeah, I mean, it makes that people underestimate the importance of the feet. And I write about it a lot in my posts. I talk about it a lot with my clients, the whole the concept of the tripod foot. People do not realize how much better your lifts will be once you have mastered that tripod base. Yeah, because like, like it's people, just crazy. yeah, it's crazy because people think like squatting is just knees, and you'll see people like I was doing an assessment the other day, and they squatted and their heels were up and their knees were all over the place. People think the goal is just to get low, but you got to break things down, and stability is huge. Yeah, and, and I mean, I was working with a client. I think I mean it's happened more than once, but last week he was doing. He's had a knee replacement. He's doing amazing, but occasionally, and it's a always during the warm-up sets. This is the other thing, and I talk about this a lot. You want your warm-up sets. Like I tell people to imagine they're using the heaviest weight possible while they're doing their body weight warm-up. Because during the warm-ups, people become really complacent. Their form is just not ideal. So he was doing split squats, and his knees were all over the place. And I was looking at his foot, and every time you could see when he would, when he would go down, his big toe would come up. So I said, I want you to still focus on pushing through like the mid to back of your foot, but I want you to really think about keeping your big toe on the floor. And the second he pushed the big toe down, so he had the tripod foot, knee was in the right position. I mean, it was just body weight, but his strength was a lot better and it just looks so much better. So little tweaks in form can make such a difference in terms of performance, in terms of how your body feels. And so I kind of really do want people to focus on the small details. But in a way, I try to make it 
so I'm not overwhelming them with cues. Because, of course, if you're coaching somebody and you're telling them 50 different things, they're probably not going to retain much of that. Yeah, it's so true. You don't want to give too much at once. There's different times. Like sometimes you can, you just want to watch them and give them feedback afterwards to see how they would, their normal movement patterns without cueing. And then sometimes I like to give feedback during. It really depends on what works for that individual. Totally. And I mean, say I'm with somebody for the first time or I'm getting to know them. I mean, of course, I'm not going to do it with a heavy weight, but I, I will, I'll ask them, have they deadlifted before? And if they say yes, I'll just say, okay, show me how you would do a body weight hip hinge. So it makes it easy for me because I can see what is good and not so good about their form. And then I kind of know what to cue and to correct. And then that, that way it kind of allows me to focus on a few points versus me having to kind of, I guess, teach them everything when they don't necessarily need to learn everything. And then you're just bombarding them with a bunch of cues that they might not even need. So I find yeah. for a lot of people that works really well. Yeah, and I find because it's, it's like a puzzle, right? Especially like improving your mobility and your weaknesses and, and your strength. It's like a puzzle. It's like where do you need more mobility? Where, what do we need to do to fix your squat? You want, a lot of times you've got to just break these things down. And a lot of people will just kind of generalize it. But you really want to like, like say you have good squat form. And you, for example, you can squat pretty deep. You have good mobility. But it's about breaking it down to seeing what areas are like what do you need for to keep the hips stable? What did you have to do there? Oh, to look at your feet. So I think a lot of times people will see it as just the movement and they'll forget that there, there's are like counterparts and you can take simpler steps. Yeah. And I find with a lot of the movements, forcing people to do negatives or even pause, like a pause squat, it forces them to really do things properly and it makes it a lot harder to cheat. Or if you're cueing them, if they're moving at a slower pace, of course, it's a lot easier for them to retain the info than if they're going at a regular tempo and then they're trying to remember everything. At least for a lot of people, I found the slower speed to be really helpful. Yeah, control is really key because a lot of times when I have new clients, they'll just like bounce out of the hole or they'll think it, they'll just go fast. Yeah. Or they'll have trouble keeping stability. For example, like this one client, he would always do more than I wanted to after he was like at failure because like... He's always like, oh, I got I gotta get results. You just like, too. So it's a lot. Of, sometimes it's slow. You just, it's hard to slow them down, but you really have to yeah. try to because you're not. If you're just like muscling it or not even. If you're going through the motions, one, you're not gonna have the mind muscle connection. Two, you're not gonna develop the body awareness. And then three, you don't. It's gonna be hard to maintain good form and own the range of motion. Yeah, and I mean another thing. I'm sure you've probably dealt with it a lot. The, the people who come in and like they're into strength train. But they have the whole mindset of they want to make themselves as tired, sweaty, and sore as possible. So they go, I mean, they're just literally trying to do a cardio workout while strength training. So, I mean, generally when that happens, if you're going really fast, you're not really paying attention and you're really tired, your form, I mean, you probably will be more prone to breakdowns in form. You will not be doing things properly. And I mean, if the goal, like the, the goal is to get stronger and to feel better, that's not going to help. So what I tell people with the sessions with most of my clients they're in it's strength training it's not cardio so I say with me we're in like you're in just trying to think of how I want to say this I mean I want them to focus on making themselves better not tired sweaty and sore if they want to make themselves tired do that during your conditioning but again if you're conditioning you want to pick activities that are not that technically demanding so you can focus on the fatigue but without obviously being in a higher risk situation. 
so for example, like I generally would not do for conditioning, I would not do barbell exercises with people. And I mean, I know of course like CrossFit and other sort of areas, they do do that. If somebody can do that and keep good form, that is one thing, but a lot of people cannot do that. So I do encourage people to focus on conditioning in a way that is much less tech or technically demanding and lower risk. Yeah, it's a really great point because you want to focus on the energy system you're you're working there. If you want to improve your conditioning, that's good. And then you get the people who just want that sweat. They feel like they didn't achieve anything if they're not sweaty. Or and that's how the and and same thing. Your example from soreness. Some people just think you have to be sore, but there's really no absolutes in anything in terms of fitness. Yeah, I mean, soreness is so unpredictable. Like sometimes I will do something and I'll think, and I mean, I don't like being sore. If generally I don't like it when my legs are that sore because then it kind of ruins the training I want to do. Like I like to sprint a lot. I like to do, I'm kind of one of those people. I do enjoy conditioning, kind of the more sprint-based conditioning. It makes me feel very athletic. I've done that my whole life. So I do tend to do that about two to three days a week. If my legs are really sore and tired, from a workout, it does kind of make my conditioning suck. So, um, oh yes, so no, what I was going to say, sometimes I will train and I will think that my legs are probably going to be pretty sore. The next day they feel amazing or from like the 24 to 72 hour window, they feel great. Other times, for example, last week I did a workout, but I had to change up the order of the exercises because the squat racks were busy until the very end. So I did my lunges first, and because I was fresh, I was able to go a lot heavier. And I think due to the lunges, my glutes were so sore the next day. And I I mean, I did not expect it at all. So soreness is very unpredictable, and it's not necessarily the measure of a good and effective workout at all. And a lot of people don't realize that. Yeah, sometimes if you're sore for too long, it actually can be onset of like too much fatigue or potential injury. Like if you're sore past 72 hours, that'd be a little concerning. But I find uh, yeah. it's most common when, like, like it's hard because, for example, like you said, sometimes you, you know when you're going to get sore, sometimes you don't know. And sometimes being more consistent and when there's less variation in your workouts, your body's more adapted to the stimulus. So you probably get maybe a little tight, maybe a little less sore, but it's hard to know. Like, I had the same issue last week, actually. I was doing a lot of, like, lunges and hip thrusts, and I decided to do barbell deadlifts and barbell squats for the first time and I said, like, two months. And I was honestly sore, like, until probably, like, maybe an entire week. It was crazy. But, like, it was a crazy experience. But I still, like, did my recovery work. And I just kind of, like, I was like, oh, maybe this is an unaccustomed stimulus. So you don't always want to stretch when it's unaccustomed exercise because you can cause additional muscle damage. So I just, like, walked a lot last week. And it honestly helped. Yeah. Well, I made the mistake. It was quite a while ago. I hadn't run or sprinted, I should say, in a couple of months. I had a bit of an injury. And I decided it was so dumb of me. I knew, but I did it anyway. I live on a hill. I decided to do hill sprints on my street. And I mean, I during the injury, I did not lose much conditioning. I pushed myself a lot more than I probably should have. My calves were the dogs in my calves for a week. I mean, it was absolutely horrible. And it was one of those things where I knew better and I did it anyway. And I totally regretted it for a whole week. <laughs> So, I mean, soreness is not, I mean, I tend to prefer to avoid being sore just because it does with my other workouts and, I mean, even my life. Yeah, it's so true because, you know, there's a lot of things outside of the gym. People have lives and, and if you're too sore, you can, you'll be missing the rest of the week's workout. So, it's about 
like finding the right balance for you. A lot of people, what helps is taking notes of like what they did. Like if you're just going to the gym and doing workouts, you're not following a program, chances are you're probably going to get more sore because you're not gauging like when your next session is or when you need to recover by or when you need to perform again. A lot of times people will just like, when you're not prepared and you go all out, I'd say you have a greater risk of being sore. Yeah. Yeah, that's like I said, I like to kind of keep the one to two reps in the tank and then it allows me to train hard all the time. But I mean, I'm not training to my max all the time. Right. And it's funny because like people like we talked about this like early in the podcast, you don't want to annihilate the muscle, but to build muscle, you only need to go like what, three reps, maybe even four reps from failure. You don't want to just leave five or six in the tank. You want to like leave like three, even two to three is like a great number to leave in the tank. Yeah. Yeah, I usually am about one. I have a hard time leaving two. I'll tend to leave one. And then, I mean, with certain exercises, I did. I was just curious. I have a goal. I want to do 50 push-ups with a 25-pound weight on my back. Totally random goal. So I did do that, um, I think it was two weeks ago, when I hit 35 reps with the 25 pounds on my back. And, I mean, I literally, like, it, 35, I did not fail but I knew if I did one more rep, I would absolutely fail. So I stopped at my max, but I knew to not continue. So like that's kind of body weight stuff. I mean, yes, I had weight on my back. That is the one time where I kind of will push myself a bit more. But I mean, again, if form fails, I will stop, even if I feel like I can do more. Because I don't do things where the form is not good. Yeah, and I feel like that comes from experience in the gym. Like you, you get to learn what you're, if you're close to failure, how much you have in you, how you're feeling on the given day. Cause every workout's different. Even if you're following a program, you're going to feel different week to week. Yeah. I mean, some days you come in or it's weird. A lot of the days when I go in, not feeling very good, I tend to have awesome workouts. Other days I go in feeling amazing and yet my strength feels terrible on that given day. So it can be pretty unpredictable. So what are some of the other concepts of like training more functionally? Like a lot of people think it's just kettlebells, but are there like specific movements you want to focus on getting strong? And I know you said the best thing is to not to always superset, which is one thing people think of with functional workers. They think of um, like supersetting kettlebells and like doing like total body high intensity, but maybe it's more of what's functional for you as the individual, right? Yeah, I was just going to say, like, the whole, like, I always cringe when I hear the term functional training because, I mean, it's kind of a catchphrase people use to market themselves. Fun basically, what is functional for me might be totally dysfunctional for somebody else. So it totally depends on the person. What works for you and benefits your life is functional. So, I mean, in general, though, what I like to do, I mean, with my own training and with everybody else, I like people to learn how to execute all of the fundamental movements. So for example, squatting, hinging, lunging, pushing, pulling, carrying is another one. And of course, it does not matter where you are, your fitness level, your experience. There's so many different variations of the same movement that will accommodate you. And I mean, I'm a huge fan. I mean, I'm going to be releasing it on June 25th. I'm releasing an awesome landmine program. I find landmine exercises, they can be super helpful. I mean, there are a lot of them are a lot less technically demanding than the barbell lifts. They allow people to master the movement with more resistance because one on, or sorry, one end of the barbell is anchored. It does make using proper form quite a bit easier. So, I mean, landmine exercises are a good example. And I mean, you can pretty much do all of the, fu the fundamental movement using a, a landmine exercise. 
Um, I'm just trying to think. Oh, there's a lot of the different body weight movements. For example, I mean, pull-ups are a great example. Push-ups are a great example. With lower body, I do, I, I mean, with myself, I do use a lot more weight with people if they can and they feel good. I do like to add resistance. But I mean, of course, it depends on the person and where they're at in their journey. Yeah, we use the landmine a lot in rehab as well, especially like for shoulder rehab. You can work on, like say they had like an impingement over a previous shoulder strain injury. It's really good because you can load the pressing pattern, starting yeah. relatively light. And because it's on a landmine, it allows you to focus on that eccentric portion of the rep a lot more controlled. Oh, I you, love it. It's a free rep, a free weight. So yeah, one things I love. Oh, it's huge. I mean, for injury recovery, or I mean, say somebody has an injury, it allows them to work around that injury and improve other areas of their body. Um, people who cannot overhead press. I mean, some people, they lack the mobility. I mean, it might be due to many reasons. A lot of the different landmine variations, they offer similar benefits, and it allows people to perform that movement when yeah. they might not otherwise be able to. I have two different clients, or I, two clients I train together, husband and wife, they're in their 70s. The male client, he has overhead mobility. It's gotten a lot better, but it's still not to the point where I will have him overhead press. And I mean, when he does it, he it's like the typical, he will shrug it up, lean to the side, arch the back, kind of do everything he can to compensate, to get the weight overhead. His wife, her mobility has dramatically improved so she, for example, like she loves the, we'll do bottoms up kettlebell presses. So while she does that, I will often have him do a landmine pressing variation. So, I mean, again, like two people, two different goals, two different backgrounds, two different exercises. So I'm not going to make them do the same thing unless it's suitable. Yeah. And not everyone has to overhead shoulder press. It requires exactly. like, yes, it requires a lot more mobility and yes, you can overload more. But maybe it's it's not what's right for you as an individual because the bottoms up press, like if you're doing barbell OHP and you can't bottoms up, that's a clear indicator that you're doing something wrong and you you may potentially get injured down the road because you got to like have that stability. Like You'll see so many pe people yeah. like like butcher, like the overhead press or even like a squat, like they don't have the lumbar pelvic stability. They're leaning backwards into their lower back and they're just like and then they're like popping their chest up and they're pushing up. But they got like this whole back bend and it just to go straight. Or even another thing, how a lot of, or I shouldn't say a lot of coaches, but some coaches insist that everybody should have the same form for a certain movement. So, for example, for squatting, everybody should be able to go ass to grass. Or that's just one example. I mean, of course, we all know that's totally untrue. Form will vary for many different reasons. So a lot of people think they do need to hit ass to grass. And then, of course, when they do, do that, they have breakdowns in form. They might be more inclined to injure themselves. So we need to figure out what works best for each person rather than insisting that everybody should have the same form. And I think yeah. that's a huge mistake that some people make. Yeah, and I think the squat is the best example because like for me, for example, like like I'm like I'm only like like five foot six and it's it, I don't have the longest like shins. So I do have to go more yeah. more like hip dominant for the squat because ankle dorsiflexion is my issue, but it's not like it's more like an anatomical like issue. Like my shins just can't travel so far. Because, you know, people with, like, longer, like, like femurs, they'll get more, it'll look like more dorsiflexion because they're just, their bones longer, and it'll look like it's further over toe. So I, I modify for what works for me. I find, like, if I'm barefoot, I can't get as, as much dorsiflexion because I don't have, like, that support in my feet to control it versus if I wear some yeah. more, like, a barefoot shoe, which gives me a little bit more support, not much of a heel, because I also have 
high arches, it's another factor to consider. Like, I, I my feet are going to supinate. So by having a, f a shoe with a little bit more support, I can actually get more active dorsiflexion. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's one thing. I mean, I think it's pretty cool is how everybody, we are so different. So it should look different. Yeah, and it's a really big thing that people have trouble understanding. Well, hopefully we've given them some insight into why they should reconsider maybe how they're training, how they're moving, and not being discouraged when they can't bench as much as their bro beside them. There's a lot more yeah. to finish. I mean, I've gotten one thing I used to do back in the day, and it was funny enough on Instagram, I used to follow a lot of different people who could squat or deadlift a lot of weight, and I would compare myself to them and then, of course, feel badly about myself. Now, I mean, I just compete against myself. I am now, I'm not that competitive when it comes to anybody else in terms of training, in terms of business or anything. I just, I don't want to necessarily say that I'm competitive with myself, but I guess I kind of just want to feel proud of myself my efforts, what I've been doing. And I, I kind of want to keep myself accountable. And I think that's really helped with both my training and my business. I'm coming out. The landline program is coming out on June 25th. And I mean, I think feedback it's already gotten has been really positive. It's a similar layout and design to my pull-up program because the feedback with it, and I mean, just the popularity has been really good. And then one other thing that I did do with the landline program so, I mean, with the landmine program, it's a two-phase program. You get 36 different landmine exercises that do address the fundamental movements. They address, I mean, full body strength, full body power. There's, I mean, there's so many different components. But what I added in, because I thought it was really important, I added in a 30-page, sorry, 36-page bonus section of supplemental exercises. So, for example, exercises that address lumbopelvic stability, adductor strength, psoas strength, foot strength and stability, hamstring strength, particularly eccentrically. I have some stuff for elbow health, shoulder, sorry, shoulder health. I think I'm forgetting a few things, but I wanted to make this program really, really comprehensive. And I think I really have. Yeah, I actually just for those of you on, who are listening, this, I actually got Megan's pull-up program a month ago because I just because I'm a big proponent of not reinventing the wheel. So I've had clients who, who have achieved pull-ups and some who haven't. And I'm just, it's, it's all about, in everything we talk about, like using the resources to educate yourself and to learn more. And the program's really, really in-depth. And I do have a few questions. So what would you say motivated you to help women specifically like master pull-ups? Well, I mean, with, funny enough, with the marketing, originally I did start out, I was, targeting more women just because I mean even if you were to google pull-ups most if not all of the images you see are of men and I mean women need to believe that they can perform pull-ups because they absolutely can so during my first launch which was October I say my first launch because I relaunched it last year I upgraded it and I have a bonus section the one that you also have so um on, I forget what day it was. I think it was day three or day four of my first launch. I ended up, a friend of mine said, you should make a post and say that your program is for everybody, not just women, because it's entirely true. So I did do that. And I mean, the second I hit post, I ended up getting an influx of male buyers. And I would guess, I mean, I don't know the exact numbers just because the program has sold a fairly large number of copies. I would say that at least 30% of the buyers, if not more, are men. So the same underlying concepts apply when you are training for pull-ups, whether you're men, woman, people of all genders, it does not matter. 
But I think the big thing with women is that they need to believe that they can do pull-ups because self-belief is everything. Yeah, the key is to just eliminate that self-sabotaging like like mindset. Like if you believe like so much can happen, and I really like how you're advocating that women can do pull-ups because it, it's huge. Like pull-ups are, are a great thing to do. And a lot of my female clients, that's the first thing they come to me for is they want to be able to do pull-ups. And it, it just, everyone honestly should be able to. Like, because if you work on your shoulder stability and other areas, like, the program specifically doesn't have you doing pull-ups forever. Like, there's a lot of stuff that's going to put the pieces together that'll make you able to do them safely and effectively and honestly in 12 weeks. Like, if you follow the program, you should be able to. Yeah, and that's another thing. A lot of the people who bought the program, they're people who could already do pull-ups. But the feedback that I've gotten, they've said their PR, like, their number of reps has gone up. If they were doing weighted pull-ups or weren't able to, they're now able to do weighted pull-up or with a greater amount of weight. But the thing that made me the most happy, they were talking about how much better their form is. And so, I mean, for pull-ups, a lot of people, they think it's just pulling your body to and from the bar or moving it to and from the bar. So much of it boils down to form. Even just tweaking form. I've worked with people even for a single session who could not do a pull-up. It wasn't because they lacked the strength. It was just because there were certain things, certain aspects of form they needed to address. A huge one is lumbopelvic stability. But I mean, that can even be a form thing. If you get the body so it's in the right position, if you're focusing on initiating the movement with the shoulder blades versus pulling with the arms, it makes such a difference. So sometimes you can clean somebody's form up in as little as a session. But of course, I mean, that's somebody who could probably already do it. They already have the strength. Others will need to work, like build up their strength as well. So like obviously doing it in a single session, that's kind of not the norm. But I did have another person. I mean, the one awesome thing about the program, it's been, I mean, October 2017 was when it first came out. Pretty much every day, at least most days of the week, I will be tagged in a video or receive a message from somebody who has been following it, who has either hit a PR, who has done their first pull up or their form is better or they're just really excited so that makes me really excited just how I mean excited and empowered people are about pull-ups and just the journey and that was a huge mission of mine when I designed it yeah it's a great feat to achieve and it's awesome to obviously it's like the creator to see it like people are getting these results but like it must be a great feeling yeah and then another thing with it that's pretty cool when I designed the program I did also design it with the goal if a coach wanted to buy it to use as a manual, like a coach to manual with their clients. So a lot of my customers are coaches, both male and female, and they use it with their clients. It kind of helped teach them how to coach pull-ups. And that's also for me, that's been really rewarding. Yeah. And also like I got it myself as a coach and teach you how to help different types of people. Like there's different areas that they may be work, they need to work on to improve their pull-ups. It might not just be their upper body and there's a lot of resources that I've used such as like some of like the scapular control stuff you do and some of the landmine stuff that I wasn't like doing before so there's a lot of stuff like I'm using on my own as well as with my clients to to help them with their pull-ups yeah I mean I did really try to make it comprehensive and I mean that's probably why it's I mean the main program is 160 pages and then I added in the 40 page bonus section but I mean it's 200 pages long so it is very comprehensive it's actually 162 pages plus the book. Oh, okay. Oh, that's <laughs> true. Because it used to be, you know what? I can't, the first 
that's I think the original program that I mean technically they're close to identical than like the original program and the upgraded program I just added in so for example for the upgraded program for push-ups I added in modified push-ups so hands elevated push-ups and I added in the McGill pull-up those were the two changes or additions I should say to the main program but then I added in the 40 page bonus section and that is entirely new so why are pull-ups like important to you obviously like to make a program like this they must be like something you're very passionate about I think um like I said when I train I love to feel like I'm playing I kind of like to mess around have fun and I mean with pull-ups there's so many different things you can do but it's also just such an empowering feeling even just pulling your body up to the bar and so for me being able to do my first was a huge deal but now just kind of playing trying different things people often they'll tag me in crazy videos of somebody like I mean I'm sure you probably follow some of the really crazy calisthenics people on Instagram. Oh, yeah. I mean, they, they post the craziest stuff. So I often get tagged in videos of people doing crazy stuff. And of course, I want to try. And I mean, I can't do everything. But a lot of the time, I'm actually able to. And I kind of shock myself. And so again, it goes back to just playing, having fun, experimenting, and just kind of feeling almost free, I guess. It's a good feeling when you do pull-ups. Because like, you're getting a really effective workout with your body weight. And that's really like... It's it's a really great feeling. It's almost like when pressing overhead for some people gives them the rush, but pull-ups, like even for me, coming from that that gymnastics background, like it's a great feeling to be strong in your body weight. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of the, not everybody, but you find a lot of the people who excel at the body weight stuff, the carryover to the barbell lifts tend to be fairly decent. Yet you get a lot of the people who are really great at the barbell lifts and they struggle to perform the body weight movements. Yeah, it's interesting how that works. You get a little bit more... Because you're working more single muscle groups, especially for like the lower body. Yeah, and I mean, even people who excel at the body weight stuff, the overall, the full body control is very good. And I think that has a really good carryover to the barbell lifts or dumbbell or anything kind of weighted. So what would you say some of the biggest mistakes are when trying to master pull-ups? Well, obviously, we mentioned how people think it's just getting to the bar. And then you see people who, who think pull-ups are like a bicep exercise. What are some of the other yeah. things you see? Uh, so, so many things. And funny, I'm presenting at a conference in Edmonton. It hasn't been announced yet, but it should be any day in September. And a huge part of what I'm going to be talking about, it will be mistakes people make when they're trying to perform pull-ups, and I'm going to provide a bunch of solutions. So one of the key mistakes, people, they initiate, like they perform the movement with their arms versus using the muscles in their back. So you'll see people when they go to do pull-ups, rather than drawing the shoulder blades in towards the spine, down towards the opposite hip, you see them just pull with their arms. So their back is basically not involved at all. So that's one key mistake. Another huge mistake, body positioning. People, they, um, or it's even less about the body positioning, they, but they lack the tension. So certain parts of their body, I mean, you want to be stable around the hips and the spine, also the lower body. So I encourage people, I don't quite use the term hollow body because they're not quite as arc. I use the term, I just say slight hollow body because you're kind of in a straighter line versus the arc. It allows you to keep, or it allows you to, or sorry, you're much less prone to swinging. Shorter your path is to the bar, of course, the easier each rep will be. If you're swinging back and forth, if your path to the bar is longer, it's going to be more challenging. If you're able to generate the tension and to maintain the correct body positioning, you're also going to be much less prone to pulling dead weight. So I sometimes use the comparison, what or the analogy, 
what would be easier to move to and from the bar? A rigid board or a limp and floppy sandbag of the same weight? Of course, the rigid board is probably going to be easier than the limp floppy sandbag. That's another mistake. Another mistake that is often overlooked is people who, and I mean, especially during the eccentric component, they keep their shoulder blades pinned and they do not allow them to move. So on the way down, your shoulder blades should perform the reverse movements as they did on the way up. You will often see people kind of gripping around the shoulder blade area. They do not move at all. As a result, I mean, I have done good form, bad form videos. And even just doing the bad form video where I do not allow the scapula to move, right away, my elbows feel terrible. You feel tension kind of around the neck. But if you're not moving the shoulder blades, or at least if they're not moving as they should, you're probably not going to be able to fully extend your arms. So you will often see people kind of doing the half reps. They're not necessarily cheating. They're just not allowing the scapula to move. And as a result, they're harder pressed to fully extend their arms. That's another mistake. Um, People who don't, I mean, so for example, me, I'm very proficient at pull-ups. I kind of reset. And when I say the word reset, I mean, I kind of take another breath in, like a 360 degree breath in. I will make sure my rib cage is down. I will have the 360 degree brace. And I kind of do that reset during the eccentric component of the pull-up. So I'm already ready to go once I hit the bottom position. So then again, my body is in a stable position. I'm not swinging. I'm not pulling dead weight. And then I can just go again. Other people, when they're kind of first starting out, they might not be able to do the reset on the way down. They might have to pause in the bottom position. But I find a lot of people are not, they don't do that proper reset either on the way down or in the bottom position. So again, they're much less, or they're uh, much more prone to swinging and pulling dead weight. That's another mistake. I have a huge list. I'm just trying it's to It's a really good analogy. I remember when, like, I'll get Klein, he, he can bust out pull-ups, but on the way down, he just seems so fatigued. It's a really good point of, like, because if yeah. you slow down the eccentric and you control, you got a lot of time there to catch your breath. If you just stay in that, that slightly hollow position. Yeah. One thing I used to do would be I would, like, and this is all, even... the, all the way to the bottom, and then I would elevate my scapula, yeah. re-depress re- it, and then pull. Yeah. So, I mean, even as I tell people, I have one client, I mean, she's in her 70s. She's done all the other pull-up specific regressions. I mean, this, I was going to add this in. This is another mistake people make. They only do band-assisted pull-ups. They don't do any of the other regressions. I mean, a lot of the time, people, like with the band, it usually provides assistance when most, or sorry, when most people don't need it. And it also kind of gives you that spring. So it makes it a lot easier to cheat and kind of disregard proper form. And a lot of people just rely on the band. They don't do, I mean, they don't do the basic hang, concentric hang, eccentric pull-ups, scapula pull-ups. So when they go to do regular pull-ups after they have just been using the band, they wonder why they're never making progress. That can be a key reason. So in my pull-up program, as you've probably seen, I don't even introduce the band until phase three. Just because I want people to master the basics before they even incorporate the band. But why I mention that, I have a client who's in her 70s. She really, really wants to be able to do an unassisted pull-up. She went, I mean, she's done all the other regressions. She started out using thickest green band. She is now down to the white band, so the thinnest band possible. She is so close to being able to do one with the band, the thin band. But I bring her up because she was saying, I mean, during the eccentric phase, she was going pretty slowly. 
And I told her, I don't care how fast or slow people go as long as there is control. So the more proficient you are at pull-ups, your speed on the way down will probably be faster, yet you are in control. That's the key thing. Of course, if your speed is a little bit faster, you are expending less energy. You will probably be able to do more. But again, unless the control's there, you have to slow the speed down. Yeah, and that like was you can be doing banded pull-ups. Yeah. You can be doing banded pull-ups for months and months and not see progress. If that's the only thing you're doing to push the needle forward, uh, I'm pretty sure you can guarantee that you won't see much progress because, like, I find when people do banded pull-ups, the band's lifting them and they're not engaging their scapula at all. Yeah. Or, or, I mean, even for me, body positioning. Body positioning is generally not the way it should be. You don't see the proper bracing, like a 360-degree brace. Another mistake, and this is one it is... A lot of people disregard the importance of what is going on with your lower body. If your lower body is kind of limp and not in the right position, again, you're going to be more prone to swinging and pulling the dead weight. So if people have the option, because of course some home pull-up bars, they do set so they're lower so you cannot fully extend your legs. I do like to coach people to fully extend their knees, dorsiflex their feet, contract their quads, squeeze their glutes. I find that helps keep the body in a much more stable position if people don't have the option of fully extending their legs they, i want them to bend their knees i like them to cross one foot over the other dorsiflex their feet and then they're going to engage their hamstrings and their glutes so they're trying to achieve the same kind of stable fixed lower body position even if their legs aren't fully extended and i do think that makes a huge difference oh yeah 100 percent. these things are we people overlook and like this program really encompasses a lot of the stuff I've done from gymnastics as, as, a, as a kid, but also like way better versions like in gymnastics. Like they wouldn't do everything with body weight and they didn't have like external load, like dumbbell rows or the dead bug rows, or the landmine stuff. So it's really like, it's, a, it's really, you know, it's not like a fundamental program, but it really has everything you need to progress to the expert. Like there's a lot of foundations that are laid there. So if you want to be doing them pain-free, like I see it as a, as a very, very good resource because it, it's taking all the guesswork, and I find that's what a lot of people struggle with, like the people who do different workouts every week who are, are not consistent with their diet is they have too much guesswork. And eliminating yeah, that exactly. will get you such better results. Yeah, and I mean, one other thing that's been pretty cool, I have gotten messages from people who are following the pull-up program who have also talked about how they're noticing how it has benefited other lifts they are doing. So I've had some people talk about how their squats are a lot better, I'm trying to think of different examples. So while, yes, you're training for the pull-up, it does have a, or it likely will have a positive carryover to a lot of other aspects of your training and even just your overall life, like daily activities. Yeah, 100%. If you have better shoulder mobility from doing pull-ups, it can help you whether you're sitting at a desk or you have an active job. Like, it, there's a lot of carryover, especially when you, yeah. you get the body awareness from mastering a body weight movement. Yeah. And I mean, even I just thought of this now, another key mistake, and I mean, we kind of already covered it just in the other comments. A lot of people think of the pull-up purely as an upper body movement, and they do disregard what is going on basically from the chest down. And that is a huge mistake. I mean, again, body positioning matters, lumbopelvic stability, what is going on with your lower body, all of that will make a huge difference in your ability to excel at pull-ups. Awesome. Awesome information here today. Can you tell the followers where they can uh, grab the program if they're interested in learning more about it? Yeah, absolutely. So the website for my pull-up program is ultimatepullups.com. 
And I mean, you can also find me on Facebook, on, on Instagram. I mean, Facebook is kind of lame now. So I would say find me on Instagram. And my main website is megancallowayfitness.com. Yeah, when this comes out, we'll be, we'll, her info will be in the description and it'll be on the Instagram page as well. So we can direct you right to that. Also have one more pull-up challenge for you before we end this podcast today. Have you ever done the 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 slow challenge where you do 20 second to 30 second on the way up, a 20 to 30 second pause and 20 to 30 on the way down. So what I, my goal is like, I challenge myself is to try to aim to get a minute time under tension in a neutral grip. No, I have, you know what? I have done the slow on the way up and the slow on the way down, but I've never paused at the top. Oh, so it, I will have killer. to try that. Try to get a minute, 20 up, I can, 20 pause, 20 down. At least it's killer. So you said 30 on the way up or 20 on the way up? I try to aim for like, first you want to be able to do 10, 10, 10, then 20, 20, 20, then 30, 30, 30. So 10 up, 10 pause, 10 down. And it helps to have a, like someone there counting for you. Because the hardest is at the top there. And then you're tired. You really got to control it on the way down. Hmm. I, I'm thinking I maybe, depending on time, I only have an hour tomorrow to train. I, maybe I will do it tomorrow. If not tomorrow, I will do it on thinking I'm a training day Thursday. And I will film myself and I will post it. Yeah, and I know I can do for sure. 10, 10, 10. I know I can for sure do 10, 10, 10. I think I could probably hit near 60. But I mean, maybe I'm totally delusional and won't. <laughs> I don't if know. If you're doing wide grip, it's a little harder. I prefer like the neutral hammer grip. So give it a try with a few and let me know because I'll try wide grip as well. You, you know what? One thing that kind of frustrates me, we don't have the only neutral grip we have at our where I train are rings. And with my pull-up grip, I don't go wide. I do kind of go more of a medium range grip, but with my palms facing out. Like a regular pull-up grip, just kind of more of a medium width. So that's probably what I'll end, or I'll end up doing. Yeah, I find the, the neutral is a great tool, but you got to use what you have. And that's a good point there. I have a neutral grip at home, but I mean, it's lower, so I can't fully extend my legs. So I'll probably do, I'll do it at the gym and maybe even tomorrow. Well, there we go. You got to do the challenge with an L-sit. You hear it, everyone? She's going to do the neutral grip L-sit at home challenge. <laughs> Whoa, wait. You said L-sit. No, I'm just I joking because you, you can't fully extend your legs at home. So you uh, just do an L-sit. Oh, got it. I could, I mean, I could do that too, but I definitely would not last for a minute. All right, we'll give it a try and we'll, we'll, we'll share it on our stories when we're done. Anyways, thanks so much. This is a great episode. Excellent. We could have even gone two hours. There's so much info. So we'll definitely have to have you back on here in the near future. Oh, I'd love to come back. Definitely. Well, thank you for having me.